You are listening to 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is a broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. This is Insagadelia on 3CR. Thank you to Freedom of Species back next week from 1pm. If you missed something on the show and you want to uh, hear more of it or hear it again, pass it on to a friend, or if you missed it like I started with, uh, head to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Freedom of Species program page, and from there you can subscribe to their podcast, find their website, and uh, connect with them via social media. Uh, the same can also be said of Psychedelia. You can do that on the 3CR website. Just follow the links to the Psychedelia program page. My name is Nick Wallace, and Psychedelia is a show about the complex interactions between the altered states caused by plants, synthesized chemical and fungi uh, that people have been using in different ways for thousands of years. We seek to explore the uh, human issue, issue of desiring altered states first and foremost. The policy of prohibition is a relatively recent social and political response to some altered states. Um, so though we neither condone nor condemn people for their choices, we believe that prohibition as a policy for reducing drug-related harms in society has failed and new options must be explored. Sitting with me today is Ash Blackwell. Ash, how are you doing? <laughs> oh. I'm good, thanks. I did, was my mic on? Yeah, it's on now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Sorry, I've been... Uh, yeah, that sounded a bit red. I've been writing things down. I'm just trying to get some things together nice and easy at the start of the show. Excellent. Just a summary. Is that a fair summary? Is that what we're doing? Getting some things together for the show. No, no. The, uh, <laughs> the, the summary there about... Uh, it's those interactions that Prohibition is a relatively recent like in terms of what we have in victoria right here in our state 1970s is really when it kicked off in this direction the direction we might see law changes here and there over that period of time the past what's that 50 years um but it's all been relatively the same the drugs poison controlled substance act of 81 was sort of the it boosted it to the next generation but before that we didn't see uh, well, prohibition sort of, as it exists today it, it depends how you count it it was about 1953 when we sort of came down on heroin in australia which is actually an interesting anecdote because it was about 20 years after the rest of the world um in australia um the the um dispensing of heroin as it was then a medical product was uh, under the control of doctors and when the rest of the world was coming down hard um, prohibiting uh, heroin and other other forms of opiates which um, many of them were prohibited earlier Australia sort of went yeah nah we got this the doctors are you know they're handling it we, we're, we're managing fine it was about 1953 where that that happened and so that mm. was where some of that prohibition rhetoric started to come in and you can read it in some of the the reports from parliament where and all of a sudden people who use drugs who are addicted to heroin weren't uh how they were maybe considered before then as, as hapless souls they started becoming you know vagrants and decadents and god forbid homosexuals so there's you know the the, the racism homophobia the 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 i guess the class shaming all of that started to come in in the rhetoric um to do with heroin in in, in the 1950s in the 1950s did that when was the united nations formed after world war Two? Yeah, late, but late. before before then, like some of the early international um, drug prohibitions was like the Shanghai Treaty on yep. um, opium, and that was about 1912. Um, that might have been 
like a League of Nations thing, like some of the wealthier countries in the world started to try and control the trade. So we've seen over the past, and if you go back a little bit further, you'll see that the big trade companies like... um, uh, well, I mean, like the British East India Company uh, and the other East India companies that were operating and trading um, herbs and spices and sometimes psychoactive plants across the uh, across the seas also started to implement uh, different kinds of policy responses. Sometimes, I mean, the opium wars in, in China where Britain flooded uh, China with opium in an attempt to subdue the population. Um, different responses, but... Um, yeah, I suppose if we, we can look at it pretty broadly, these things have been going on for a long time. And in Victoria, um, we did have a different kind of system before the 1950s. It, there, it was much more in the hands of, of doctors. And I'm, not, I'm still not quite sure how... I haven't read enough about how... Like, how did this work out? Did people just... They were just able to get it? The doctors just were a little bit more relaxed on that? Wasn't there, uh, yeah, there was, space uh, to say? Well, it was loosely regulated, and and not all of that is necessarily positive, you know, like cocaine in this and heroin in that, and um, uh, got a toothache, have some heroin, cocaine, <laughs> yeah, yeah. cannabis, okay, <laughs> yeah, Thanks and so you know, we we have a different way of, I guess, regulating the safety of all products in modern society. Um, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing is is you know a complex discussion, but um, certainly I think that. Most people wouldn't be comfortable with the loosely regulated system that used to be there. It came with problems, as does prohibition. Um, So, you know, I think that it used to not be the pharmacy, it used to be the drugstore. Right. And so, um, you know, and you can see this in old photos like drugstore and it's that's what it was. They sold drugs, Mm -hmm. some of them, you know, for for uh, for a cough um, and some of them maybe were for other things and some of them perhaps were meant for one thing and used for another. Um, And so, yeah, I think it was fairly loosely regulated. You kind of went in, said, yeah, I'll have the heroin cough mixture and you know whether you took it as as uh as intended um was maybe more up to the individual and that's kind of the point of what we're talking about Uh, on the program this afternoon, we are going to be talking about um, a couple of different different topics. The federal budget came out this week. I was not um, budget nerding myself out on it. Did you do any of that, Ash? Uh, I didn't. I read I read some reviews here and there and some critiques, but um, I, I haven't had a, a deep look at the budget broadly uh, as yet. No, I haven't looked at some of the, of the stuff the news. <laughs> to do with drug policy and mental health. Yep. Um, I think that's always interesting just to track... Uh, what's going on there in terms of funding, in terms of innovative initiatives. Um, Some positive things in there. I think we'll get to that shortly. We'll be catching up with uh, Melanie Walker, the CEO of AVIL, or the Australian Illicit and Injecting Injecting Drug Users League, Uh, the uh, peak body of uh, drug user organisations in Australia about their response to the budget and some of the uh, the ups, some of the downs, and some of the sideways. I think there's a lot of sideways with drug policy stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a bit more money. Sorry, where's it going? Ah, it doesn't really make sense. I see. (laughs) Yay. All right, we'll try and untangle this for another three to four years and then restart, restart. So we're going to be talking about... About that and then on the other side of the uh, conversation is the conversation about this about it all um, and how uh, drug issues get reported in the media which is a fairly important thing for those that don't have first-hand experience of people who use drugs although usually they do they just don't think of those people as the drug people as you know most 
people who are racist are like, oh, Bill, a black friend. You're like, oh, right, okay. So it makes everything you say okay. Like, yeah, that detachment uh, happens and it gets promulgated through stereotypes in the media and, and through uh, sort of common tropes and stigma. And it's become, um, I don't know if it's always been the role of civil society groups, but to try and put out um, responses to that, uh, to that, to the way that narrative is unfolding, and AOD Media Watch has been one of those responses um, from Dr. Stephen Bright, uh, who's also the Vice President of Prism Psychedelic Research and Science and Medicine, uh, and also uh, a lecturer at Edith Cowan University in drug policy and all, all things drugs over there. So he's had lots of students come through his classroom as well, and is really particularly interested in the way that drugs get reported. In the media, so we're gonna have a chat with him and also uh, Liam Engels, who is, was a student of Steve's, um, I believe, and um, is currently now what is he's doing on? a PhD? He is doing his PhD, yeah, yeah, um, or completing his PhD somewhere, somewhere around there. We can ask line. him yeah. shortly. <laughs> um, yeah. But it, you guys are going to be talking about something that's caught your attention. Yeah, there was an article that came out in the Herald Sun, and I think we briefly mentioned it maybe on last week's show, um, written by uh, in. Uh, Assistant Commissioner Glenn Weir, who is the top uh, drug cop in Victoria. And the article uh, essentially likened uh, drug dealers to terrorists. And um, I mean, straight at that point, I, I, you know, starting to get my blood boiling and, (laughs) you know, getting me a bit... Yeah, definitely, definitely a bit stone stone slotty. I don't know. Well, I think if you you read through the article, I mean, there were a couple of things in there that were good. Um, where he he called for um, uh, more diversion rather than sending people to court. About one in five uh, people that are caught uh, with drug possession go through a diversion program. Um, We have to ask what happens to the other four and and whether that's in any way a useful thing for society. Um, So, you know, calling to end the drug war at that kind of possession level, although some other things that he said made me doubt his conviction. <laughs> but the fact that um, he likened all drug dealers to terrorists and, and was kind of off base on a few other things um, made it... A, it was kind of a strange article. It was all over the place and um, Playing that there were um, a lot of errors fiddle. in fact and there were a lot of uh, comments that were perhaps less than useful and um, we're going to delve into that a little bit. Uh, right now on In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, this is Cheshire with Hoodoo Voodoo featuring Ray Cole. 3CR. Cheshire with Hoodoo Voodoo on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au. This is in Psychedelia. And right now, uh, we're going to get stuck into the budget and its implications for uh, drug policy uh, and, um, and, and the programs that look after treatment sector, look after responses to drug issues, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in this federal budget right before an election. Um, still not called, but sometime in May, probably mid-May. Uh, on the line to help us along is the CEO of AVIL, the Australian Illicit and Injecting Drug Users League, uh, Melanie Walker. Melanie, welcome to the program. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for um, being on with us this afternoon, and we've had a read through of the um, of the AVIL uh, budget response. Um, what's your what's your overall take? 
look, pleasantly surprised, I've got to say. Um, I've been going to the health budget lockup for, God, over a decade now, wearing various hats for different organisations, and I've got to say this is the best budget I've ever seen for our sector. So very, very pleasantly surprised. What are the key highlights? So one of the big highlights for us is the $45.4 million over four years for implementation of the new national bloodborne virus and sexually transmissible infection strategies. So those five strategies came out in December last year and, you know, despite what you might expect from um, a relatively conservative government, they're really beautiful documents advocating things like needle and syringe programs in prisons. In fact, all five of the national strategies in the BBVSCI space advocate needle and syringe programs in prisons. Um, Custodial settings are back in. So those um, five strategies, the last iterating iterations had custodial um, settings completely out. Now people in custodial settings are back in, which is obviously makes a huge difference in terms of transition to community. Um, so we're really happy with that. In addition to that, there's $189.1 million over the next five years for a new package of whole-of-government drug strategy initiatives so funding for rehab services, increasing access to services in re- regional, rural and remote areas, um, take-home naloxone, PBS subsidised take-home naloxone, and there's a heap of money that looks to be going to go out in grants under the National Ice Action Strategy. So, you know, in terms of the BBV STI strategy money, we kind of know where that's going to go because that'll be allocated in line with the implementation plans. And priority populations are people who use drugs, people in custodial settings, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, peer-based services um, feature very prominently in those strategies. So that's pretty exciting. In terms of the drug and alcohol money, though, we just need a bit more detail. These are some big figures and they sound good, but there's not a lot of detail on how that money will be spent yet. So I guess just waiting to see if it's as good as it sounds. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that I noticed reading through it, that there's a lot of money, um, for example, being thrown uh, at treatment. But I sort of wondered, what does that look like? What does that mean? What are the organisations running it? What's their success rate? Uh, What do they even measure their success on? What is success called in that context? There's a lot of questions, I think, over over that. And it's all well and good to throw money at it. But is there any leadership (laughs) Maybe this is a silly time to ask that question. There's a lot of positive intent at this stage and not a lot of detail, and that's what AVA will be focusing on with the number of our partner organisations moving forward, making sure that money actually goes where it needs to go um, and isn't spent in a way that doesn't help our affected communities. But, you know, at this point, I feel like I can't look a gift horse in the mouth. It's a lot of money, (laughs) um, and that's got to be a good thing in some way, shape or form. And the other good news is is that discussions with the opposition have indicated that they will honour these commitments, and indeed they've made some additional commitments about further initiatives in the area of HIV. Mm. So for once, we're looking pretty good in terms of the budget, and we're looking pretty good either way in terms of the election. So... Yeah, look, I had to pinch myself a few times last week. It's, um, it's an interesting position to be in. Could you tell us a little bit more about the custodial programs and what they actually look like? That's something we haven't covered very often on the show, I think. So I, yeah, yeah, I think so we'd be curious to hear a bit more. of people in prisons, um, the previous National Bloodborne Virus and Sexually Transmissible Infection Strategies were silent about people in custodial settings like they didn't exist. Um, And that was because um, in terms of funding, 
custodial settings come under the state and territory banner. But um, AVAL and a number of other organisations at the national level, FAO, Scarlet Alliance, Hepatitis Australia, NAPWA, Indigenous Doctors and ASHAM, we advocated very strongly um, this time around in the last couple of years as the strategies were developed that you can't just ignore people in custodial settings. Um, obviously, BBV and STI transmission is an issue in there. Things like needle and syringe programs are an issue. Access to hep C treatment for people who go into custodial settings. And also what that looks like coming out in terms of continuity of treatment. All of those things were things that we advocated very strongly on, on the basis that even though custodial settings are technically a state and territory issue, if you're going to have national strategies that are looking at addressing BBV and STI, it seems ridiculous to ignore people in custodial settings when they're one of the, the most at-risk groups and they're coming in and out of prison settings, you know? It's not like they're going off to a desert island. Most people who go to prison spend less than two years there and are coming back out to their families and communities. Mm. So if you're trying to address spread of bloodborne viruses and sexually transmissible infections, you can't just ignore a whole segment of the population that's, you know, mixing in the general population and coming in and out. So even if you don't have any compassion for people in custodial settings, you've got to admit that it is completely ridiculous to ignore them in terms of the spread of BBV and STIs. And happily, we seem to have won that argument. And now the national strategies are speaking to the need for those priorities to be pushed at both national and jurisdictional level. And what AVIL's hopeful for is that things like recommendations for needle and syringe programs in prisons being in the national strategies now will actually give some courage to those state governments who said that they want to do those things but didn't really have the support of the Commonwealth previously. Mm. So in the ACT, for instance, it's still the ACT government's policy that they want to introduce the needle and syringe program in the prison here, and that's their official policy that they've now taken to two elections. They've just struggled with implementation given some of the issues with custodial officers and unions. Yeah, I remember following that with the prison union pushback very strongly against that. Indeed. So now the ACT government can say, well, it's not just us. Mm. The feds are saying this is a good idea too and a government of a different persuasion. So it hopefully will give some courage to those jurisdictions who've kind of been teetering on the brink but not quite got there yet. So that's all good news. And the fact that custodial settings are specifically talked about in the national strategies as priority settings for these strategies, it it just means that it really does give more of a policy framework to the jurisdictions who want to go there, if you know what I mean. So Mm. that's very exciting too. And um, before we finish up this afternoon, Melanie, um, again, a huge chunk of the money that has gone to, to... the policy response for for drugs from the federal government is going towards um, some fairly expensive policing initiatives. Uh, One hundred and forty seven million dollars over over four years to the Home Affairs portfolio, which has been um, Peter Dutton's uh, nest nest. Indeed, yeah, yeah nest. Custom to um, border security and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is to combat um, outlaw motorcycle gangs. Like the language is really strong, <laughs> and trafficking of illicit firearms and drugs. Chuck the guns in there too, because it looks more gangster. Like, <laughs> is this? I mean, is this a waste of money? Look, you know, <laughs> well, well, there's some good news in the budget. It hasn't been a revolution yet, you know, but. I mean, in most of the budgets, we see those sort of initiatives and we don't see anything in the health space. Mm. The fact that there's $189.1 million over five years in the health space for drug and alcohol initiatives is, 
you know, I think an indication that we're moving in the right direction. Um, you know, a number of people have said to me this week, oh, look, Mel, there's still a lot for law enforcement and it's still really skewed in that direction. And that's all true. But at least there is a big chunk in the health budget now and there is obviously some shifting recognition that that's a space that is at least as important. So I think it gives us something to build on. But, you know, honestly, most of the budgets, I'm sitting there with the budget papers and a highlighter trying to find some good news desperately in there somewhere. This time it was in the media releases up front. So, you know, it is coming into an election and, you know, we have to be a little bit realistic about why the government's perhaps spending a lot of money on health at this stage of the electoral cycle. But that being said, it's still money that's going to go in a good direction and that's got to be a good thing. Thank you for reminding us of the silver lining. (laughs) I think think it's good to be reminded sometimes. No, thank you very much, Melanie. And um, uh, it it looks like it's going to be a a good year for for progress and growth, I hope, in a lot of the the sector. Just got to watch those small details, and we'll be talking about those over the coming weeks. Thanks, Melanie. certainly that's the next mission for us. So thanks, Nick. But, yeah, at the moment it's not looking too bad either way in terms of the election, I think. Thank you very much. No worries. Have a good afternoon, everyone. Melanie Walker is the CEO of AVIL, and if you want to find out uh, more about uh, AVIL's bu- uh, budget response or the work that they do, uh, you can head to their website, uh, which I believe is AVIL, A-I-V-L.org.au, uh, and you'll find lots of information there and find their social media as well. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. On sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Get a healthy dose of anti-nuclear, peace and sustainability issues on The Radioactive Show. 10am Saturdays on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. And also podcast and web streamed on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. The Radioactive Show, where every bit of exposure makes you stronger. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity or wanting to get exposure for your own film? The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There will be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers there's the short film competition. This year's theme is 
the unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, iffaustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. And you're listening to In Psychedelia, um, a show uh, that focuses on the intersection of drug issues, social issues, political issues, cultural issues, etc., etc., on and on and on. And the one we're going to be focusing on today is um, sort of a, uh, it's a cultural thing, but it's also um, how sort of our attitudes um get forged, uh, forged in the crucible of the um, public discourse. Uh, am I being too dramatic? Ash, um, uh, he's got no attention. He's looking at something <laughs> on his computer. Uh, we, it's the narrative. How, does, how do the stories get built? How do these, where do these stereotypes come from? Where do these myths uh, find way, find paths into our minds? Uh, and there is uh, one man who has um, led a bit of a, a journey to uh, find answers to that question, and that man is Dr. Stephen Bright. Am I being too, too dramatic? I think I am. Too many cups of tea. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think so. No, I think what you're talking about is, is yeah, there is a public discourse and that discourse, there, there, are, there are limitations in the way that we can talk about alcohol and other drugs within that public discourse and that limits the way we can think about these problems, maybe, maybe think about them as problems or not problems or problematise them or, you know, it really restricts how we think about them. And Dr. Stephen Bright uh, is the founder of AOD Media Watch, which is his response to this um, this issue where a number of uh, other uh, experts in the field of uh, alcohol and other drugs have uh, come on board as reviewers, people um, who are professors or experts in one way or another. Um, and the the process is kind of like a, a peer review process sort of for, for writing uh, journal pieces, but anybody is open uh, is able to write a piece uh, as long as you follow a few guidelines, and really, that's the that's the heart of what AOD Media Watch is. So, what what maybe um, tell us a little little uh, bit about how why you wanted to do this, how how it began. So, how it began was in 2016. I saw a piece published on news.com.au talking about dimethyltryptamine, and it was talking about DMT becoming more popular in Australia. And there were some quotes from um, a particular expert in the field stating that, uh, you know, that this is a really dangerous drug and we need to be concerned about it. And it was creating this real unnecessary moral panic. And it contained misinformation, clear misinformation. It said that more often DMT was being synthesised in Australia, which didn't make a lot of sense to me, given our, our natural flora has such an abundance in it. And so I wrote a letter to ABC Media Watch, um, and unfortunately, they didn't get back to me. So I was talking to some colleagues and someone said, you know, I was outraged at this story and someone said, well, did, you know, maybe you should contact ABC Media Watch. I said, I did and they didn't get back to me. And they said, well, maybe you need to set up something, you know, that's specific for, for our field, something talking specifically about the problems in reporting within the media with regard to alcohol and other drug issues. So it was that story that kicked things off in 2016. And I think... I actually got in contact with you, Nick, to, to help me set up uh, a server and get a website started. And at that stage, I thought, you know, this is going to be like an ABC Media Watch type thing. I then worked with, uh, got in touch with other respectable colleagues and got them on board as a bit of a steering committee to, to sort of see how this project would evolve. And very quickly, we started to develop resources for journalists 
resources for consumers, for people who are contacted by the media um, that, that are wanting to, the, the person to talk about their own substance use, uh, resources for uh, expert commentators. So we started developing all of these resources and very quickly it got bigger than Ben-Hur. And uh, so this year, or sorry, last year, 2018, uh, a group called Mind Claims was funded by the Australian Commonwealth Department of Health to start implementing some of these uh, sort of guidelines and resources and, and create, ensure that the new journalists coming through uh, had an understanding of these issues, understanding of the vested interest that, that various people have when they're talking about alcohol and other drug use issues. And, you know, we, we wanted to do that back in sort of 2017, but with a... With a, with a uh, a lot of other competing um, tasks. It wasn't something that we were able to do. So now Mindframes has really come online. They've um, developed and, and now uh, launched some, some resources for journalists, which look a bit snazzier than the, the original um, guidelines for journalists that we developed. But more importantly, Mindframes is... Um, that they've actually got a long history of sort of working with the media. So about 20, 25 years ago... They started working with the media around the reporting of mental health issues and suicides and things like that. And it's, I believe it's one of the, the, the only projects that's been demonstrated to have a significant impact on media reporting worldwide. So they're, they're the ideal organisation to come into this space and uh, sort of work more closely with the media, work more closely with tertiary or university um, courses, to be able to integrate into their curriculum information about reporting on alcohol and other drug use issues. And I think we've, we've got a nice symbiotic relationship now where I guess we can really sort of focus now on the, um, you know, the ABC-type media watch-style um, engagement with, with, with people, picking up on, on poor reporting and focus our resources on that and uh, allow mind frames to sort of enter into the space and, and pick up the load in terms of, yeah, in terms of, not, not, not telling the media how they should do their job, but I guess encouraging them to report in a more helpful manner. And so from my perspective, it, it's not just about picking up on poor reporting. It's also looking at how the media might be leveraged to actually reduce harm, promote health. Because at the moment, when you've got the media you know, reporting sensationalist stories, people are not going to really engage with the media to get their information. I tell people, the last spot you want to get your information from is the media. If they can turn things around and become a respectable source of information, they might be able to provide harm reduction information or other useful information that to actually, uh, you know, be, be useful and, and reduce drug-related harms rather than increase drug-related harms through sensationalist reporting and reporting on you know, new drugs that most people don't know about, creating moral panic and potentially curiosity leading to people to engage in drug use. Mm. If you want to read these um, guidelines for yourself, mindframe.org.au and then follow the links through the alcohol and other drugs uh, section and you can find the uh, the Mindframe guidelines there and have a have a read for yourself. So these um, were developed in response... Uh, sorry, uh, alongside um, uh, what AOD Media Watch has been doing... Um, and uh, the, I mean, maybe 
talk to us a little bit more about some of the stories, some of the... Re- I mean, you've talked about the DMT one where a certain expert who, I don't know, if he, we, we can probably name him, doesn't really matter. He, he's, he's out there in the public record yeah. saying these things. It's um, Andrew Laby from... Um, uh, uh, Safe Work Laboratories. Safe Work Laboratories, um, who actually met recently and was he was quite uh, nice in person, I guess, but, you know, everyone is. <laughs> Generally, it's really hard to, to not be... Um, but uh, that's that's one example, but maybe some more recent poor examples. What's been going through the AOD Media Watch siphon more recently, Steve? Yeah, so look, we, we had an, I had an opportunity to look over the data from, from the last, well, since we started, basically, and look at all the stories that we've published. Um, we, in 2018, we published less stories than 20, uh, from 2017, but had a lot more engagement from the community with regard to those stories. The, the, the drug that was most commonly um, reported on where they were reporting issues was methamphetamine. And I guess that probably doesn't come as a surprise, given that within that public discourse, as per your introduction, um, there is this concern about nice epidemic that doesn't exist. Um, So, you know, whenever there's the chance for the media to uh, write a story uh, on methamphetamine, you know, any any journalist worth their salt wouldn't take up that opportunity at the moment to write a story because it's going to go create a great headline and sell newspapers or get people to tune in to, to, to TV and, um, you know, sell, sell advertising. Or, and essentially that's what the media is. You know, mainstream media is about selling newspapers and creating money from, from advertisement. And so the primary, primary drug was, was methamphetamine. We also saw um, quite a bit of reporting on uh, moral panics with regard to new and emerging substances. Um, and finally, I guess there was a focus, there's been quite a bit of focus in the past 12 months on, I guess, festivals and pill testing and some of the poor reporting that's occurred around that issue. Yeah, there has been, um, quite a bit. In fact, one of the stories, um, that, uh, I, I, I believe it's in development or something at the moment for, I don't know if we can say that, but, um, yeah, yeah, you can, yeah. hopefully, hopefully it'll be published, uh, Monday or Tuesday. Yep, so this is, uh, we, we'll be speaking with Liam uh, soon, so this is the one that we talked about at the top of the show, Ash, that you've um, mm. uh, been onto as well. Did you want just, to just touch on that and maybe like draw out what are the themes that AOD Media Watch in particular is looking for in a story um, like the one that um, Ash saw the other day in the, the Yeah, housing? look, I, I think, you know, for people listening, I think there's a couple of things that, that we look out for. Um, in the past, there was a focus on... Um, reporting that perpetuated stigma of alcohol and other drug use behaviours and inaccuracies in reporting. So where there's disinformation being reported, and I think we recently had our sort of strategic planning day, and while we'll continue with that focus, um, I, I think we probably want to be get just slightly broader than that with, with more of a focus on uh, the, the misinformation component, but just... I, th- I think there's examples that don't fit nicely into that category, uh, and this, I think this, uh, you know, the, the article that, that, that Ash has talked about at the start of the show is a good example where what the issue here, and this is so common in media reporting, is that they've only spoken to one person, and they're presenting one person's opinion as if it's factual. And you know, if you look at the DMT story that started AOD Media Watch, it was the same problem. Um, I would, I suspect, I don't know the story behind it, but I suspect that in that case, uh, Andrew had actually got in touch with the journalist to sell them the story and pitch them the story because there's a vested interest there because it's a bit of promotion for a business. 
Um, mm. And whenever the media are being contacted by people or are contacting people, I think it's important that the media think about what are the vested interests here? Does this person have a vested interest in presenting the issue in a particular way? And as a consumer of media, as you're reading stuff about alcohol and drugs, pill testing, festivals, you know, is, are the people that they're reporting the best people to be talking about this issue? Should they, ideally, the media should be at least engaging with, um, you know, two sides of the story. If there's an issue with politics, they would never just take on ScoMo's, um, you know, what ScoMo had to say without uh, asking the opposition or asking for some alternative perspective. I think the real issue with media reporting on alcohol and other drugs is that um, journalists are great at critical thinking when it comes to most issues. But when it comes to alcohol and other drugs, they often just fall into the trap of understanding the issue from within, through the lens, that perspective of the public discourse, and not sort of thinking critically about other sort of other perspectives or even fact-checking the information. They just assume that, you know, if a, 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 a senior member of police or a, a toxicologist or somebody in one of these expert positions is saying something, then it is true. And it may not be true. Uh, I think the media needs to, you know, be, it's really hard because media resources are getting stretched further and further. We know that. And so it's harder and harder for the media to engage in that fact-checking process. But mm. at least just ring somebody else. And something we're going to try to do with AOD Media Watch is in the same way, you know, when you see a story and, and, and they provide the information for Lifeline, whenever we publish something from now on in, we're going to put out there to the media, you know, if you want to get in touch with us when you're writing a story on alcohol and other drugs, we'd be happy to connect you up with other people who might be able to provide that alternative perspective. And that's that's a, that's the kind of resource which will hopefully get those um, other voices out there a little bit more. I, I worry that one of the reasons why we have this um, this sort of cultural attitude in the mainstream media um, is because of the Broadcasting Services Act. So uh, the Broadcasting Services Act, which was introduced in 1992, replacing an older Broadcasting Services um, Act type thing. I can't remember what the old one's called, but it um, it lays down the, the rules for radio, television. Um, there's also similar ones for newspaper and, and publication as well. And one of the uh, one of the one of the uh, 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 sections is that every industry group that looks after these uh, broadcasters must must develop a code of practice that reflects what they call community attitudes, and that's sounding a bit Facebooky, isn't it? I'm doing it back to front, but it's that sort of community, the community attitudes that are never like what does what does that mean? It's unclear, but they must write these codes of practice. Uh, in regard to the portrayal in programs of the use of drugs, including alcohol and tobacco. And the way that that's been interpreted by almost every industry body is that, um, for example, here at 3CR, the CBAA's Code of Practice, which is uh, what we must adhere to, uh, says that we must not present as desirable the use of illegal drugs, the misuse of tobacco or alcohol, as well as other harmful substances. And this gets taught to people who are going into media, who are becoming journalists, so it's part of their uh, of, of how they understand it. And if they've had the drug education that most people my age have had, and probably most people around um, many other ages as well, we haven't had good drug education for a while unless you pursue it, then that's your understanding of what how you talk about drugs in the media. You must not promote it or present as desirable. So I wonder if it's just easy if somebody's saying no, because it kind of reflects this essentially a prohibitionary policy response that um, constrains our media. 
I Absolute, wonder. Uh, absolutely. I think you, you've, you've hit, hit the nail on the head there. And I think Liam will be good to talk to this maybe a bit further, but there's sort of a, a, a paradigm closure that takes place. So when the media are reporting on things, they, they are limited sort of in the way that they can report on things, both from, um, you know, a bureaucratic perspective and what they're able to do in terms of legislation, but also um, there are certain... Um, ways of thinking about drugs, such as um, drugs being illegal, uh, prohibition. And uh, if they present the information in that way, um, it's sort of, it, it, it's one of the few few ways that they can um, report on drugs in a way that is seen as rational and logical, and even though it may not be, but, but it's perceived that way by the general public. I think... Um, you know, in terms of those, in terms of the guidelines, um, the Australian Press Council actually has some guidelines from from about 1992 that would have been in relation to the legislation that you talked about. But they were, it was very broad, and hopefully, Mindframes, uh, the Mindframes guidelines will be adopted by uh, media organisations from here into the future. And I guess one one other issue um, in terms of media reporting is where do the media get their news from? And I ask this question because I'm supervising an honours student at the moment who's been interviewing journalists, and I, I, you know, he's interpreting the data at the moment. But one of the issues that came up is, um, you know, journalists report on what they see to be a news story, and, and what's counted as a news story often it's due to some sort of criminal behaviour, be it someone being prosecuted for um, possession or in, intention to supply, or some crime that's actually related to. Um, a person's substance use behaviour. So that perpetuates, I guess, the criminogenic perception of alcohol and other drugs and, and it closes the paradigm. It, it, shuts, it, it sort of fits nicely within that public discourse. Um, Steve, thank you very much for chatting with us today. Uh, we're, we're out of time because we're going to go and speak with Liam now as well about a bit more about this um, uh, this article. But um, well, I would direct everyone to the AOD Media Watch website now, but maybe just bookmark it because it's down. You're going to go fix that. Aren't you, yes, we're working on that right now. <laughs> but it is aodmediawatch.com.au, but their social media is still up, um, so you can head along uh, to AOD Media Watch on Facebook, uh, also on Twitter. Um, lots of good conversation going around the uh, the Twitter and the, the hashtags that you can follow along uh, for AOD Media Watch and um, plenty of good conversation uh, on, on Facebook if you want to be there as well. Um, otherwise, you can also check out uh, other podcasts that Steve has been on uh, in the past on our website, inpsychedelia.org, um, by just following the tags click on aod media watch or, or Stephen bright steve thanks for joining us thanks for having me nick and i look forward to seeing how liam sort of continues the conversation yes very interested uh enjoy your afternoon thanks bye <laughs> That's Dr. Stephen Bright, who is the founder of AODMediaWatch.com.au and also Vice President of uh, PRISM, Psychedelic Research and Science and Medicine, uh, which we didn't touch on today because um, the, the uh, mind frames guidelines, as you might be getting sort of an idea of now, uh, could be really important for changing or at least starting to change uh, the cultural, the media, m- mainstream media cultural landscape um, and how it reports on drugs at the moment, which creates the stereotypes, the myths, the, 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 the grand the big narratives that end up informing our federal and state politics as well. So if that can start to shift towards something with a little bit more understanding, that would be very good. So um, I thought I might just read out some of the guidelines from mindframe.org.au and start with the suicide stuff because I think that many people, um, you know, might be able to reflect on the fact that 
suicide is often either not reported or it's reported in a very specific way. So these guidelines have essentially been taken up by all of the Australian media. Um, and a couple of the things that they mention at the, at the top of the sort of brief summary of the guidelines, when communicating about suicide, it's important to remember that suicide is a complex issue and is often not preceded by a single event or condition. Um, and some of the guidelines on communication, when communicating about suicide, be mindful of using safe, inclusive language, presenting confirmed information, removing method and location details, and including help-seeking pathways. And that last one is one in particular that you don't always see in drug reporting, and that's a link where somebody can get assistance if they are experiencing difficulties. On the line now with us is Liam Engels, uh, who is now, we were trying to work this out, Liam, are you currently still um, doing your PhD? Oh, well, I've been waiting on the marks for like seven months. Right. So technically, yes, <laughs> but in, in my head, no. Limbo, limbo land, yeah. Mark limbo land. Um, Liam, welcome to the program. Hi. Uh, thanks for being here. And um, we've just been speaking with uh, Steve Bright about AOD Media Watch uh, and about uh, where, it, where it came from, especially around creating guidelines on how to, how to frame these conversations that often a lot of people don't have a lot of information on other than maybe a few anecdotes or maybe one or two negative first-hand experiences, which tend to uh, create quite a, a grey caricature, um, which is then what we base all of our policy on. On our, our, our broader discussions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we saw a particularly grey cloud over the mainstream media uh, in the past week um, from a uh, very authoritative position. Demand. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, so, so we're talking about the, the drug terrorist article, right? Yep. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You do, well, where do you start, right? <laughs> Well, what was your first take on it? Because this one for me, this this got me fired up in a way that no article has in in probably quite a long time. So, what what was your first take? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it, so so the the AM Media Watch project, I think, is it does a really cool thing and is really important. And it's kind of a complicated thing trying to wear that hat and then also wear my kind of personal identity hat at the same time, right? So, like on a personal level, the things that annoy with me are like you know the headlines straight off the bat comparing um, people who use drugs to terrorists. Uh, and kind of discriminatory language is what really irks me on a personal level. But for the AOD Media Watch piece, uh, we we try to... That, that can be a bit more difficult to distinguish, you know, when language is being discriminatory and when it's not. And we, we try to uh, be as informative as possible. And I think uh, from that perspective, my main criticism is the fact that, you know, the, the piece is all about drug policy, essentially, and it's just giving the perspective of... Um, of a assistant police commissioner, like no one who's actually an expert in in drug policy is uh, has their opinions in, in the article either. So, that, I guess that's from an AOD Media Watch perspective, that was the big concern. Yeah, I think um, I, I didn't get past the headline before I was outraged either. <laughs> I mean, we are talking just what like just two or three weeks since our closest neighbour and ally, New Zealand, experienced what I, I think is the the most serious terror terrorist incident that that's ever happened on those shores. And then dealers are likened to terrorists. And, you know, my question there was like, all dealers? Like a 16-year-old selling a little bit of weed to his, his mate at high school? Is he a terrorist now? So, you know, Guantanamo Bay and waterboarding is, is you know, considered an appropriate response now? Like, with, with, there's no, you know, that was one of my biggest things on this article. There, there's no distinction between 
what what might be like a, a seriously violent, you know, uh, criminal. Like, a, you know, if we, we only have to look at um, what's happening with uh, drugs in Mexico to see that, yeah, some of the people involved in that are very seriously violent people. But what about somebody who's just, you know, supplying a bit of MDMA just to their friends, like that kind of low-level dealing? There's absolutely no distinction between them. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's something that is, is like a, an even further frontier than people being more sensitive to, to drug use. Like drug dealers, it's kind of something that people find even harder to be, be sympathetic um, towards. And uh, in terms of the, just the use of the terror word, like it's kind of a word I try to avoid entirely. It's a bit of a moral panic term. I think uh, there's all these kind of ideologies and assumptions that come into play when people use that term. I think it's easier just to talk about the event specifically rather than trying to frame it as terrorism. Mm. I, I got a bit conspiratorial after reviewing this article and rereading it several times, writing a few <laughs> notes on some of the you know, inaccuracies that are contained within it. And um, I started to wonder if maybe this was a call for, you know, police are scared of some of their resources disappearing because, you know, if you mention the word terrorist uh, in policing, you know, in any kind of security operation... You tend to kind of get what you want. Yeah, and, people um, take you a bit seriously. Yeah, well, you, you you might not be aware of this, but many people that were at Rainbow Serpent Festival this year noticed an uh, what seemed to be an unmanned aerial vehicle or a drone that uh, circled over the festival site. Oh, and, right. and I still have a curiosity of what was that and what was it doing there? You know, is this is this the the um, the kind of tools of the war on terror being? Uh, I guess trialed for a um, for, for another another use, and um, and I've seen reporting of this where you know apparently drones are going to be going up over festivals more, and so that's you know I wonder if like one of the main pitches of the the article was around that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I don't want to get too deep into conspiracy theories, as fun as they are, but I I definitely get the same sensation. I think. You know, when you say the word terrorism, like like you said, you can get what you want, and that's how it, it seems to be an effective way of kind of uh, suspending freedoms, right? Like if you, if you say so, if something's a, a terrorist activity, it, it's easier to put restrictions in place that normally people would say aren't appropriate. And what about some of the inaccuracies or misrepresentations that you that kind of stuck out to you in the article? Oh, well, I mean, you've got to go straight to pill testing, right? Like, pill testing is nonsensical. Like, mate, you're nonsensical. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was one of the ones that jumped out for me as well, especially because he, he mentions elsewhere in the article that, you know, he, he recognises that drugs should be treated more as a health issue at that kind of, you know, use possession level. And um, so it really, like, it almost hurt my brain. I'm like, oh, you think it should be treated as a health issue, but you're you're kind of um, uh, anticipating the, the the actual input of health people by saying that something is nonsensical that's being supported by, I, I don't even know how many health bodies now, you know, five, six? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bit contradictory. But, you know, I, I was glad to see the line about health in there. You know, I think, I think drug policy is a bit more complicated just than health, but uh, at least, you know, that was probably the nicest thing he said, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, so you can take try try to look at it with some positivity, I guess, in a in a bleak world. So to wrap it up, um, we've got to wind up the show for today. But any final thoughts? Um. Oh gosh. Well, uh, I just want to support AD Media Watch and encourage people to kind of 
I think it's a good lens through which to understand how we talk about drugs. Like uh, a lot of people kind of understand that intuitively, but but AD Media Watch having to form like a specific uh, approach to dealing with that and have some specific guidelines, I think it, it kind of helps uh, draw into light, you know, how important it is the way that we phrase things and give people some ideas of ways that they could do it better. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the show and let us know when you finally get that um, PhD, Mark, and we'll we'll have you back on the show to talk about that. Yes, but well, I look forward to it very much. Thank you. (laughs) See you, Liam. See you guys. Uh, Liam Ingalls uh, is uh, writing a piece for AID Media Watch, uh, waiting on his PhD, Mark, uh, and um, I believe he'll be a doctor of philosophy specialising in ethnobotany and also some drug policy issues. It's just about all t- all the time that in the world that we have uh, this afternoon in the next <laughs> two minutes. It's in psychedelia on 3CR, and we're out of time. That's what I'm trying to get. That's the words I'm trying to say. Sorry about that. Uh, we uh, do have uh, outside broadcast EGA May 12th. That's Mother's Day at Springvale Town Hall. Uh, Thin Green Line is the title of the panel that will be broadcast live on May 12th. Um, if you want tickets to that, go and find Entheogenesis Australis, uh, which you can do on social media, on our website, npsychedelia.org. Please check it out. Lots of information there as well. Uh, and we've got um, also putting together a broadcast from Nimbin, hopefully. That'll be in a few weeks. And some other exciting things um, coming up. Thank you to everyone who's been on the program um, this afternoon. Melanie Walker from Avil. Uh uh, Dr. Stephen Bright from AOD Media Watch, Liam Engels uh, also from AOD Media Watch, Ash yourself, uh, thank you. <laughs> I'm not, not going to thank myself because that'd be weird, and I'm wa- wasting time now. Uh, up next uh, is Queering the Air. Enjoy your afternoon. Uh, bye bye. This is in psychedelia. Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next This Sunday. has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.